Hey, uh, we're so glad that you guys made it here today. I'm Pastor Mike. Uh, I serve as, <laughs> thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Uh, yeah, serve as the executive pastor here at Walk Church and honored to be speaking here today at week two of the Deepen Conference. Um, one other group of, of people I just want to recognize and welcome is our online audience once again. If you're joining us online, we welcome you. We're glad that you're logging on with us and joining in with us today. And uh, just want to just take a moment here and honor our pastor, Pastor Hyden. Um, you know, Pastor Hyden and George are actually out of town. They're in Northern California today, and, and Pastor Hyden has been preaching at a youth camp, um, and he's preaching on Sunday morning this morning there at their church. And, and so I just love the way that they're pouring into the youth, uh, even outside of our state. But not only that, they're learning from this camp, uh, one of the best camps in the country, and bringing that knowledge back here to Las Vegas uh, so we can apply it here at our church. Amen. Yeah, so excited for that. Uh, also, just, you know, Pastor Hyden is just, I'm convinced, one of the, the very best communicators of God's word I have ever heard in my life. And I, I'm just so excited and honored that we actually get to sit under his preaching week in and week out. So can we just honor our pastor, Pastor yeah. Hyden? And, you know, his wife, Nina, does so much working behind the scenes, keeping the home in order, raising those three boys. We got one more on the way. Um, and not only does she keep everything uh, in order at home, but she also leads our children's ministry here at such a high level. And so uh, we just want to honor her as well this morning. So let's hear it for, for, for Miss Nina. Yeah, exciting. Well, yeah, they're worthy of the honor. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be speaking here today again, as I said, week two of our Deepen conference and, and uh, excuse me, Deepen series. So this Deepen series has actually become part of the culture here at Walk Church. So every January... We spend the entire month going deeper. And so the, the definition of the word deeper just means to extend far down beneath the surface. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're in the shallow end, but we're, we're stepping out into the deeper edge, edge of the waters. We're going deeper in our faith. We're going deeper in our relationship with the Lord. And, and we just really feel that it's so important to start the year off right with the focus on God and our faith and going deeper in him. And so I hope that you've been following along. Our staff has been writing daily devotions every day. We've been putting out this content for you guys, and it really is for you. And so we hope that you've been uh, leaning into that. And again, George did such an amazing job on gratitude today. Uh, and so we'll continue that through the 21 days. But uh, I want you guys to mark your calendars, not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday, uh, we're actually going to be doing 24 hours of prayer. Uh, it's going to start at, at, uh, at 6.30 at our, at our Walk Church ministry office. And it's going to go overnight all the way through into the next day. And it's going to lead directly into our Wednesday night prayer gathering. And so I don't know about you, but I can imagine that's going to be powerful. Um, I, I hope you guys will be there for that. And then that Friday, Friday the 21st, Saturday the 22nd, and into the 23rd that Sunday, we're going to have a deepened conference. So this whole deepened series is going to culminate in a, in a conference that will be right here at this school, and so I really hope that you will be here for that as well. I really believe it's just such a powerful way to start and go deeper in 2022. Amen? Yeah. All right. Well, when Pastor Hyden asked me to speak today, I began to pray and just, just really think about what Jesus might want to say to his church today, and so uh, I really felt like he was just saying, you know what, I really want you to go deeper in your relationship with me. I felt like that's what he was saying, so I've, I've written a sermon today that I've entitled, uh, deepen my discipleship. Deepen my discipleship. And so um, let's just talk about this. What, what is a disciple? Well, in the ancient world, um, you would have a, a student and you would have a teacher. 
and the students would sit at the feet of their teachers and they would listen to them and they would learn from them. Uh, but they wouldn't just learn for the sake of learning information, right? They would learn from that teacher in order to be like them, right? They would imitate their life. They would follow them around and observe what they did. And, and, and pretty soon the, the, the teacher would become, or the, the student would become like the teacher. If you really just want to boil it down, what, what is it to be a disciple of Jesus? It's to be a follower of Jesus, right? You follow Jesus and you imitate him as beloved children of God, um, I think that there's a little bit of a misconception. I think that some people think, well, there's a difference between like a Christian, that's like one level, but then there's like a whole other level, and that's disciple, right? It's like, I'm, I'm a regular Christian. I'm, I'm not like one of those like dream team members. Like those guys are crazy, you know, those dream team members, they're on another level. They are on another level, but listen, there's only one level in the Christian faith, okay? <laughs> listen, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. There's no, there's no distinction between that. Right? As a matter of fact, the, the word Christian is never even used in the four Gospels. Did you realize that? Christians didn't get the name Christian until the book of Acts many years after the resurrection, and it actually came as an insult to them. To, to be a Christian means to be a little Christ. The disciples of Jesus became so much like him that the watching world said, hey, look at there. He's just, he's just like a little Christ, the Pastor Stacy right there. A little Christ. He just looks like Christ. He, just, he does everything Christ does. He says what Christ says. He's just a little Christ. And it was an insult. And the, and the disciples were like, I kind of like that. That's a good insult. I'm going to take that on. I like that. I'm going to wear that insult. And I'm going to become uh, a Christian. But the word disciple is the primary word that the Bible used to describe somebody who's a follower of Jesus. Any followers of Jesus in the room today? Yeah, that's right. Any disciples in the room? Yeah. How many people here know that there's a cost to following Jesus? Yeah, there sure is. I was studying for my sermon this week, and I came across an article. I actually didn't know this was happening, but did you guys know that on Christmas Day, NASA launched a brand new satellite into outer space, and it's, a, uh, it's actually a telescope. And here, here it is right here. It's called the James Webb Telescope. This is actually, this shield right here shields it from the sun, and this is actually the size of a tennis court. So the whole thing has to, like, unfold flawlessly in, in outer space. This, this is all gold foil around this telescope right here. But this telescope actually is going to replace uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, they're saying that this telescope is 100 times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope. Here, here's what they're saying. I don't know how this is possible. I'm not a scientist. If you understand how this works, let me know. But they said that this telescope is going to allow researchers to see almost back to the beginning of time. That, that, that's what they said. And so I'm excited to see um, what, what images this thing produces. But, but here's what they said. They said that when they launched this into space on Christmas Day, uh, they interviewed one of the scientists, and they said that the launch was flawless and perfect. I like those words, quote, flawless and perfect. And I think that that flawless and perfect launch was due in large part to NASA's philosophy of, of the do-whatever-it-takes mentality. They didn't spare any cost launching the satellite into space. They didn't sacrifice quality for speed or anything else. They just said, we're going to do it right, and we're going we're gonna to make sure that this thing goes off right. And you know what? I think... NASA actually learned their lesson. They haven't always had a whatever-it-takes mentality. Uh, this is a little bit further back in history, but in 1997, NASA launched two satellites into space just two months apart from each other. It was called the, um, the Mars Polar Lander and the Mars Climate Orbiter. So you can see that this is a much cheaper, uh, inexpensive satellite. I'm sure it still costs a lot, but 
they launched this into space, and as it approached Mars, uh, it, it actually had a, a pretty good little crash landing. Um, you can actually see where, where it crashed into the, to the surface of Mars right here. Two months later, they sent up another, uh, another satellite, the Mars Climate Orbiter, and it's this other satellite here, this uh, inexpensive-looking satellite. And again, it came plummeting down. It crashed and burned. And it was later discovered that if NASA would have simply purchased the necessary software, that they could have ran the right simulations, and they could have avoided um, the crash and burn scenario that, that they faced here. And so NASA's philosophy hasn't always been do whatever it takes. At this time, their philosophy was better, faster, cheaper. Um, they may have done it faster, but they certainly didn't do it cheaper. You, you feel me? There, there's a cost. If you want to do things right, there's a cost that you have to count. And uh, this is precisely the kind of mistake that Jesus wants to be sure that all of his disciples are careful to avoid. We want to avoid the crash and burn, right? Therefore, Jesus tells us in advance how much it will cost to follow him to the very end. Even before we come to faith in Christ, he calls us to count the true cost of Christian discipleship, which demands for us to love him more than anyone or anything else in this world and to carry our cross of sacrificial love for him. Now, before I get started too far, I just want to bring a point of clarity. How many people here know that salvation, to be saved, to have your sins forgiven, to, to, to have your name written in heaven, all of that is the free gift of God? How many people know that? Is there anything that I can do to earn my salvation? No. Can, can I buy it? No, you can't do that. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. And, and, and what he meant by that was he, he, he said, paid in full. Jesus paid for my sin and yours in full on the cross, and there's nothing that I can do to earn it or buy it or anything else. It's all I can do is receive it freely as a gift. However, that, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a cost to following him. There's, there, there's going to be a cost in my relationships, possibly. I might lose some friends. I might lose family members over my decision to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. It might cause me to lose my job. I might even, God might call me to a different job. It's going to cause me, it's going to cost me uh, time. It's going to cost me effort, energy to serve maybe at church. God's going to call me to do something costly. Amen? Amen. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 is where we'll be at today. Uh, the words of Jesus that we're about to read, read here are what's referred to as the hard words of Jesus. Now, they're, they're not hard in the sense that they're hard to understand. They're just hard to swallow. Amen? We need these words this morning, though. There's a saying, and here's what it, what it says. It says, soft preaching produces hard hearts, but hard preaching produces soft hearts. This is going to be some hard preaching today, but hey, praise God, we're in the deep in series, right? Yeah. yeah, we're going deeper. This passage ends by Jesus saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I pray this morning that we would have ears to hear, but I need to know if you guys are up for the challenge this morning. You guys up for it? If you're ready, say I'm ready. ready. Oh, come on, man. I don't believe you guys. Come on. You got you to convince me. Are you ready? Say I'm ready. ready. Oh, okay, that was good. That was much better. But here's, check this out. Here's what I need you guys to do. I need you to take your seatbelt. Ready? Come on, do this with me. Come on, you need to put it on. Put that seatbelt on. Okay, you got it. Now you got to put your helmet on. Do this. Put it on. Don't forget to put the chin strap on, though. You got to click it. Otherwise, that thing might come, uh, come flying off. All right. You ready? All right. If you're hungry, say, let's eat. Let's eat. 
All right, let's go. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray right now for soft hearts. God, I pray that you would help us to understand these words this morning that you yourself wrote by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that your spirit would illuminate these words off the page and into our hearts. God, that we would put them into practice and that we would store these words deep down inside our soul. God, we need these words, but we need you today to be our teacher. God, prepare our hearts and our ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you guys there? Luke 14, starting in verse 25, Jesus is heading to uh, Jerusalem. He's about to give his life on the cross, and there's great crowds of people following him. And here's what it says, verse 25 is how it starts. And here's where I got the the title for this message. I just want you to notice as we read three times, Jesus is going to say these words, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. All right, that's where we got the title for this message today. Here's what it says. It says, starting in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All right, these these are some, some tough words of Jesus this morning, but these words, I want you to know, church, these, church, uh, these words are intentionally meant by Jesus to be shocking. I think you can agree with me that these words were shocking, right? Listen, these words jump off the page with boldness and power and heart-searching reality, and they hit us hard. They land hard right here in our, in our chest as we try to search out what, what does Jesus mean when he says that I must hate my father and mother? Here Jesus tells us exactly what is expected of anyone who desires to be one of his followers. No one can accuse Jesus of hiding the terms of discipleship and the fine point of the contract, can they? Jesus is crystal clear on this issue. So let's see if we can dig down into this text and just pull out a few things that will help us understand what Jesus is saying to help us deepen our discipleship in 2022. I just want us to notice, first of all, um, the first point is this, that to follow Jesus... Uh, Let's go ahead and pull it up here. To follow Jesus, you must follow him personally. You must follow him personally. Let's go ahead and pull this verse up on the screen, verse 25. I just want to notice here that it says that great crowds were following Jesus. Do you see how this this crowd, it has an S on the end of it, right? This is plural, right? This wasn't just a crowd of people that were following Jesus, but these were crowds. These were crowds upon crowds, multiple crowds of people all following Jesus. And these weren't little crowds. These were great crowds. These, were, these weren't in the 30s and 40s. These were in the hundreds and maybe even in the thousands, multiple crowds of hundreds and thousands of people following Jesus. 
In fact, in the original language, it says that mega crowds were following. What's a mega crowd? Like, you tell me, these were a lot of people following Jesus. Never had anyone spoken the way that Jesus spoke before. Never had anyone done the miracles that Jesus had done. Jesus had risen people from the dead. He'd restored sight to the blind. He'd he'd healed lepers and all kinds of things. And and this man had so much popularity. And, and, And Jesus has one chance to turn around and say something powerful to this crowd. Now, I, I don't know about you, but as an executive pastor, here's what I might say. Hey, Shane, let's get these guys some connection cards, man. Let's, let's get their phone number. Let's get their email address. I want to connect with these people. And, and you know what else? Give them an invite card. Let's tell them to invite their friends. But Jesus doesn't see the crowds. Look at this word right here. Here's, here's what he says. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, if any one comes to me. If any one comes to me, Jesus knows that not everyone in the crowd is following him with the level of commitment that Jesus requires. Hey, how easy is it to, to just go with the flow in life? How easy is it to just to be part of the crowd, nameless, faceless, just going along with the crowd? It really takes some, some boldness. It takes an extra level of commitment to, to step out from the crowd and say, hey, I'm going to differentiate myself from everyone else. I'm going to take the step, and I'm going to make the commitment necessary to follow you, Jesus. Yeah. That's what Jesus is looking for here. Jesus is locking eyes with certain individuals in the crowd. He's saying, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone comes to me. You see, D- Jesus doesn't see the crowds. He's seeing individuals in the crowd, and he sees the individuals in the crowd here this morning. And let me, let me just ask you, where are you at with Jesus this morning? And I, I don't mean where are you sitting. I mean, hey, look, check it out. You're in church. That's a really good start, right? Come on, praise God, you're here. But here's what I mean. Where are you at in your heart with Jesus? Where are you at in your soul with, with Jesus Christ? Because that's what Jesus is looking at right now. That's what he's looking at this morning. And Jesus is calling these people here, and he's calling us this morning to make a deeper level of personal commitment to him. That's what Jesus says. If anyone, check this out next, he says, comes to me. What does it mean to come to me? Here's, what I, here's one thing I want to notice. This is such an amazing open invitation. Jesus is saying anyone can come to me. You can come to me. Anyone in this room can come to me. There's no one here who's disqualified from coming to me. No one in here has messed up their life so bad that they can't come to me. Jesus is saying everyone is welcome. Not only is everyone welcome, but everyone is invited. In fact, my father has prepared a wedding feast. Everything is prepared and everything is ready. And you're invited. I want you to come. If anyone comes to me. And just to illustrate what Jesus means when he says, if anyone comes to me, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says to the people, he says, I am the bread of life. What an amazing and staggering claim. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, there's our words, he shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's what I want us to see, that coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are the same thing. To come to Jesus, you simply believe in Jesus. And I love everything else in this passage too. I mean, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Jesus has a way to satisfy the desires inside of our soul that the world can never satisfy. We can search and search all our life long, but we'll never find that thing that we're looking for until we come to Jesus and we won't hunger anymore and we'll never thirst. Same thing in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day, of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. There's our words again. And drink. Jesus is inviting us to come to him and to drink this morning. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There are so many incredible blessings associated with coming to Christ and believing in him. And there's such an open invitation that's amazing this morning. There's the blessing of knowing your sins are forgiven. There's the blessing of knowing that your name is written in heaven. There's the blessing of knowing that you've been adopted into God's family. There's a blessing to know that all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your sin and everything that you've ever done that you're ashamed of in your life has been paid for in full at the cross. As a matter of fact, it's been nailed to the cross and now we have a clean conscience, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us, and we are saved and set free to live and walk in him. It really is an amazing life. Yeah, we can clap for the blessed life. It's an amazing life. It's a blessed life. It really is the best life, and all of this is the free gift that God gives to those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But here's what I want us to see in this point, that Jesus is less concerned with the crowd and more concerned with the individuals in the crowd. Let me ask you again, where are you at with Jesus this morning? Because a disciple is one that follows Jesus because he holds the first position in their heart. That's what Jesus is really getting at here. He's like, where are you at in your heart with me? And that's why he says what he says next here in verse 26. Here's what he says. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I want us to know when Jesus repeats something two times, he's serious. When he repeats it three times, he's really serious. The whole point of this passage is what it takes to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And though we do not earn our salvation in any way, following Jesus will cost us in our relationships with people. And that's what Jesus tells us next. Point number two, to follow Jesus, you must love him more than anyone or anything. These really are the shocking words that we need to deal with this morning. What does Jesus mean to hate our father and mother? I mean, hasn't Jesus read the Bible before? I mean, come on, help me out here, church. First John chapter 4, verse 7 says this. It says, beloved, let us love one another That's a command. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love I'm sorry, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, check out the logic here, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. I'm thinking Jesus at least knows the Ten Commandments. Commandment number five, ready? Honor your father and mother. Ephesians chapter five, husbands, love your wives. Titus chapter two, wives, love your husbands and children. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter five commands us to love our enemies. I'm thinking I'm also supposed to love my mom and dad, right? And my kids and my wife. John chapter 13, Shane did a great devotional this week on love, and he quoted this passage where Jesus commands his followers to love one another. But he says, love one another in the way that I've loved you. So that's the caveat he puts on it. How did Jesus love us? He loved us unconditionally. 
He loved us self-sacrificially. So Jesus does indeed call us to a higher level of love for one another. So if Jesus doesn't want me to actively engage in hatred for my own family members, then what is Jesus saying here? Someone help me, please. <laughs> right? The answer comes to this question from a Hebrew form. It's a figure of speech called hyperbole. Right? We all use hyperbole, don't we? Hyperbole is an exaggerated way to say something. It's intentionally exaggerated to drive home a point, right? Come on, all, all the ladies in the room, right? These high heels are killing me. All the parents in the room, I've told you to clean your room a million times. I was going to say a thousand, but that wouldn't be hyperbole. <laughs> I'm drowning in paperwork. Like, we use hyperbole all the time, and that's what Jesus is doing here. You remember the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 29? Genesis, uh, Jacob leaves his home and he, he comes to the property of this man named Laban. And Laban has two daughters. He has an older daughter named Leah and a younger daughter named Rachel. And Rachel was kind of fine. And he's like, what do I need to do to marry Rachel? <laughs> and, and Laban says, cool, you just need to work for me for seven years. So seven years comes and goes. Day of the wedding comes. It must have been nighttime, from what I can gather. Laban sneaks Leah into the tent instead of Rachel. Jacob marries Leah instead of Rachel. And he's like, what happened? You tricked me, right? He goes, okay, fine, I'm married to Leah now. What do I need to do for Rachel? He says, work another seven years. Works another seven years, comes around, time comes and goes. He finally gets married to Rachel. He's got two wives. The Bible's not endorsing it. It's just re recording what happened. You got me? But here's what we're told in Genesis chapter 29. We're told two times that Jacob hated Leah but loved Rachel, right? But the key to understanding this passage comes in verse 30, and here's what it says. Genesis chapter 29, verse 30. Here's what it says. Speaking of Jacob, it says, he loved Rachel. Everyone say this word. More, More than Leah. It's not that he actively harbored hatred in his heart for Leah. It's just that he loved Rachel more. It's just that his love for Rachel was so intense that his love for Leah seemed like hatred to her. You see what I'm saying? And we do this all the time, don't we? How many people have one of these on your finger? Anyone? Is it just me? My love for my wife is so intense that all the other women in my life feel like he must hate me. Like he goes home with her every day, he provides for her, he, they go on dates all the time. They, well, not all the time, but they go on dates, they, they have kids together, like they're going to spend the rest of their life together. He's not doing any of those things with me. Hey, it's not that I don't love my mom and different people and, you know, different women in my life who are friends of mine. It's just that my love for Ilse is so intense that it seems like, it must seem like hatred to all the other women. There's a parallel passage to the passage that we're reading this morning in Matthew chapter 10. And, um, you know, the great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said that scripture is like a diamond, right? And only a diamond can cut a diamond and only scripture can interpret scripture, amen? amen? We don't just try to take a guess on what we think it means. We need to go to the scripture to find the right interpretation. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. It says, whoever loves father or mother, what's this say? Is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So loving our fathers and our mothers and our children and our brothers and our sisters are all really good things that we're, in, that we're commanded in Scripture to do. Amen? Amen? But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying your love and commitment and care for the most important people in your life should pale 
in comparison to your love for me. You cannot be my disciple unless I'm first place in your life. So let me just ask you, what do you think about first thing in the morning when you wake up? What do you think about, what's the last thing you think about at nighttime before you go to bed? What do you think about all day long? What is the one great passion that drives you throughout the day? What is the motivation for doing the things that you do? Working at the job that you work at, raising your kids the way that you raise your kids, retiring where you're going to retire, living in the home that you're going to live in. What is the great desire and passion that drives all of those decisions? Jesus is saying it has to be me. If you're going to be my disciple, it has to be me. That's what I demand. You can't be a Christian. You can't be a disciple. You can't be a follower of Jesus unless you actually follow me. I used to go to um, Lake Mead all the time when I was a kid. We had a boat, and I would, we would go out, and um, we would spend the night. We would anchor. Um, we'd put our boat into a little cove somewhere, and um, we would start fishing, and And sometimes on a really clear night, when there was no moon out or anything like that, you could look up into the sky and you could see see the stars. I still love to do this. Anytime I'm not in a city like Las Vegas, here it's too bright. But I love to go to a place where it's dark, maybe up to the mountains or or somewhere where there's not too much light. And I like to look up and I like to to see if I can see the stars. But we would do that and I, I would look up and I would see Orion's belt. I would see if we could find the Big Dipper, and then from there you look down and you see the Little Dipper. And on the really clear, dark nights, you could actually make out the Milky Way galaxy. Have you guys ever seen that before? Just looking up with the naked eye, it's just, just a little glow in the sky. You know what's amazing is, is when we woke up in the morning and we looked outside when the sun came up, you could never see the stars. Isn't that interesting? You guys do know that the, sun, the stars don't stop shining, right? It's not like the stars stop shining when the sun comes up. It's just that the sun shines so bright that you can't see the stars anymore, right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when your love for me appears, it needs to shine so bright that it, it, it drowns out all of the other loves. It's not that you don't love those people anymore. You do. I'm commanding you to love them. It's just that your love for me has to be so intense and burn so bright that you can barely even see the other loves in your life when it comes down to the way you live and make your decisions. You know, we're, we're blessed to live in the United States of America where we don't have to often choose between our family and our faith in Jesus. Amen? But you, you do realize that in most countries around the world, if you choose to become a follower of Jesus, there's a very high likelihood that your entire family is going to disown you. Any social status that you had is automatically gone. Any safety that you had of living in a home or or getting property when your parents pass on through inheritance, it's all gone. Your relationships are gone. Your job is gone. Your life might even very well be in danger. I was talking to a friend of mine at church this week. It's It's a girl who goes to our church here, and And she was just sharing with me how she came here from the Philippines, uh, I think about 10 years ago. And when she came here, she moved into a home with her aunt up in the the Bay Area. And she didn't know anyone here. She had no friends. And God just happened to order things to where a girl that she went to preschool with in the Philippines had also moved to the United States and also moved in the same city where she was living. And this friend just happened, right, just happened, 
to reach out to her and said, hey, I know you probably don't know anyone, but I just want you to know I'm here and I'd love to spend time with you. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to invite you to church. Yeah. And I'll even come pick you up. And then we'll even go eat lunch afterwards. And, and, and my friend was saying, she was like, well, seems really nice, but she's like one of those weird Christians, you know, like they're so weird, you know, inviting me to church. But eventually she said, okay, I'm going to take you up on the offer. And so she went and she sat in the sermon and she, she heard the sermon, the, the word of God powerfully preached and she came to faith in Jesus Christ and she was born again and she went back home and, and she was just so excited for this newfound faith in Christ. She, she had put her yes on the table and she said, I'm going to follow Jesus. And she was having conversations on the phone with people that she met at church and talking about getting baptized and, and her aunt overheard these conversations and she said, hey, I just need to tell you something that if you decide to go through with this and really be a follower of Jesus, you just need to know that you're going to be disowned from this family. We will no longer talk to you. We'll cut you off. You'll have to move out of this house, and we will be done with you. As a matter of fact, if you're going to go ahead and get baptized, you can leave tomorrow. And some of her friends had offered to say, hey, you could just do a secret baptism. No one's going to know. And she said, no way. That's the whole point of baptism is you want everyone to know. Right. You're following Jesus. Yeah. And so she didn't know what she was going to do. She didn't have a car. She couldn't drive. She didn't have a place to go. She didn't know anyone. And so she had put out some job applications. And that day, somebody just happened to call her. And they wanted to hire her as a live-in nurse at their home. And so one day before she was going to be kicked out of the house, she was able to move in with this couple, an elderly couple. They were Christians. They read the Bible together every day. And it was just amazing how God provided for her. But she's somebody who really had to live this passage out. She had to choose a very real choice between being disowned by her own family, who she dearly loves, or following Jesus. Right? Th those, those were the options. And she said, even to this day, when I go over maybe to my brother's house, if any of my other family members are coming over, my brother kicks me out because they don't want to be in my presence. And she said, this is a quote that, that I, just, I remember that she said. She says, I have to get out of my comfort zone, and I have to get into his comfort zone. And so she goes to be comforted by Jesus. And that's what Jesus means when he says here in verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross... And come after me cannot be my disciple. Right? The one who carries his cross is a person who stands out from the crowd. They're marked out. It's obvious that they're committed to Christ. The person who carries their cross is telling the world that they have a new love. They have a person named Jesus now who's the most important person in their life. And because of their allegiance to Jesus, they're willing to give up their own rights and their own desires if God calls them to give them up. Christianity is a serious religion, is it not? This doesn't seem easy. Yes, yeah, salvation is completely free, but there's a cost to following Jesus. I like this quote from Neil Postman, this American professor. He says this about Christianity. He says, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Like my friend here from church, we have to count the cost. We have to bear our own cross and come after Jesus. We have to be willing to stand out from the crowd and identify ourselves with Christ publicly and be willing to face the consequences of whatever comes. 
And now check this out. Jesus gives us two parables to illustrate the point of what he's talking about. The first one is a parable. It's a story about a man who began to build something and wasn't able to finish. Look at this in verse 28. He says, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, excuse me, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to. To finish. And this leads me to my third point. To follow Jesus, you must count the cost. You have to count the cost if you're going to follow Christ. I, I worked, used to work at the Wynn Hotel for about 10 years. And, and every day when I would drive to work, I would drive up and I would see this big blue monstrosity called the, the Mountain Blue. This, this amazing building that it looks like it was going to be finished, but, but they had to stop building it. Let's see if we can go ahead and pull it up on the screen here. I don't know if you guys have, have seen this on your drive Anywhere. This is the Fountain Blue Hotel. This is a $2.9 billion, 63-story glass skyscraper with a casino, convention center, restaurants, bars, and 3,800 rooms. They started building it in 2007, but in 2009, they had to stop construction and file for bankruptcy. They didn't have enough to finish the project. And this building has been sitting here for, for now what, 12 years since 2009? Am I doing my math right? 12 years. It's been sitting here unfinished. It looks just like this. But I am grateful that someone else bought it and they're going to complete construction of it in 2023. It's going to end up taking 14 years to build what should have taken maybe two to three years in total. That's what Jesus is saying to us here this morning. He's saying that we have to count the cross. Listen, there's a cross before the crown in Jesus' life, Right? There's, we should expect the same thing in our own life. There's a cross before the crown. We have to carry our cross. One day we will be with him in glory. I'm not saying that the Christian life isn't an amazing life. I just said that it was. It's the best life. It's the blessed life. But it's a costly life. It may cost you, as it did for my friend, it may cost you your family. It may cost you your friends, especially for all of the youth students here in the room this morning. Your friends are probably not going to think you're more cool because you're following Jesus. Just want to let you know that this morning. Because you're going to youth group and you're going to church on Sunday and you're not going to do the things that your friends are going to do, don't expect your friends to think you're more cool. Expect them to think that you're less cool. Are you with me on that? you got to be willing to count the cost. Do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? It may cost you your job, either because... You get fired or because you realize that this is not where God wants me to be. And God retains all rights over your life. It may cost you followers on social media. It may cost you your plans. Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to take Jesus seriously? If you are, you must count the cost. How much will it cost me to follow Jesus? How much do I need to be sustained, sustained in my discipleship? Right? It's not the beginning but the finishing that counts. And this morning, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I don't want you to be discouraged by the cost, but I do want you to count the cost. I want you to calculate what you think it's going to cost you to follow Jesus this week. And then I want you to reach in your pocket and see if you have enough to follow him this week. Do you have what it takes? And I think what you'll discover is the answer is no, you don't. You don't have enough. You don't have what it takes unless you have an account in the bank of heaven. But if you have an, an account in the bank of heaven, my friends, then you have more than enough. You have enough to get you through your discipleship this week and more than enough to get you through. 
Listen, if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, then you have everything that you need. Whether you've been a disciple for a week, right, a day, a week, a month, a year, or for 40 years in the wilderness, you know that God's resources have never let you down, so you just keep on coming back to your heavenly Father in dependence on him, and God continues to supply every need that you have. That's one of our core values here at Walk Church. It's God dependence. We are God dependent people. I don't have enough. Listen, I'm the pastor up here preaching to you this morning. I don't have enough in my own pocket to to live the Christian life this week on my own. We have to go to God in dependence and trust him to supply every need that we have. That's why I love Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 so much. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My friend, you do have a heavenly bank account that you can draw from when you need it. And then Jesus gives us another analogy. He says in verse 31, he says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Now this is really such an interesting scenario here, right? Jesus is telling the story. What are we talking about? We're talking about the, the cost of discipleship, of following Jesus. So tell me this real quick, church. Who's the king with 20,000 troops? Jesus, right? Jesus is the king with 20,000. Who's the king with 10,000? Us, right? You're the king with 10,000. That's what Je- You're the king with 10,000 in this story. God is the king with 20,000 troops. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why Jesus said in his very first sermon, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and Jesus Christ can call 10,000 legions of angels at any moment to come and to fight his battles for him. No one in here can withstand the coming kingdom of God. Listen, so check this out. Point number four, I just before I finish reading this point, to follow Jesus You can't afford not to follow Jesus, right? If in the last point we said, you have to ask yourself the question, do I have enough? Do I have enough to to pay the cost to follow Jesus? Can I afford it? In this parable, he's saying you can't afford not to. Let's go ahead and pull pull those verses back up and we'll continue reading here. Starting in verse 32, he says, and if not, right? Because check this out. We have to deliberate. We have to think about it. We have to figure it out. Can, Can I... Can I fight this king? He says, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, in the ancient world, there were battles like this that happened all the time. Kingdoms would rise and kingdoms would fall and and there would be a great kingdom that rose up, like the Romans or the Assyrians or the, the Persians. And, and they would go around the world, Alexander the Great, and they would just start sweeping nations and countries and cities. And, and that's what would happen. You'd have this great army approaching, and you'd have to sit there and figure out, man, can I, can I fight this guy? I only have 50,000 troops. He's got a million. It's not going to work out well for you. So what do you do? You, you send out your, your nicest guy, and you bring some gifts. And you say, hey, what do we have to do to, like, keep the peace? Here's what the terms would be. You ready? Complete surrender. I accept your terms of peace. Here's what they are. Complete surrender. And then here's what would happen oftentimes. The the conquering king would say, okay, I'm going to let you stay the king of your city. 
You can stay there. You're going to continue to reign. You're going to continue to keep the peace. You're going to continue to govern the city. But here's the deal. Here's the understanding. Is that when I need something, I call on you and you do it for me. If I need you to do something, I ask you and the answer is yes. You now answer to me. And that's what it's like for the Christian. God comes in, we, we submit to the king, we realize that he's the king with 20,000 troops, and we say terms of peace, and God may very well allow you to stay at the job that you're working in. God may very well allow you to stay in the city that you're in, or the, um, uh, the, whatever job you're at, or God also retains the rights over your life where he may ask you to do something different. But here's the thing, a disciple always says yes. We have to deliberate whether we're able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against us with 20,000. So practically, here's what it means. You guys, do you guys realize that the entire world and everything in it is the Lord's? Including me and you, we belong to God, right? Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the earth and all who dwell therein. The difference between a disciple and someone who refuses to follow Jesus is that the disciple just realizes that I belong to God. Everything that I have belongs to God. My home belongs to God. My car belongs to God. My bank account belongs to God. My health belongs to God. My age belongs to God. Everything in my life belongs to God. I'm just now being entrusted with it as a steward. And that's what happens. We go from owners where we think that we own, we really don't. We think that we're the owners of everything in our life, and we move over to this new category called a steward, where God entrusts us with certain things in our life, and now we have to govern these things in our life in a way that glorifies and pleases King Jesus. Right? So, so for the Christian, it's like my home is now his home. I use my home the way that God wants me to use my home. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we might host charge group at my house. I might invite a bunch of people that I don't really know too well to come over to my house and eat dinner with us once a week. Right? I might do something else at my house. I'm going to throw a birthday party for someone at my house. God, whatever you want me to do, this house is your home. My car is now his car. My bank account is now his bank account. God, I'm going to spend my money the way that you want me to. And Jesus Christ retains all rights over the way I live my life. He re retains rights over my job, where I live, my lifestyle, the way I spend my time, where I live at. Jesus has the final say now in everything that I do. Now he very, may very well, as I mentioned, allow us to stay where we are, or he may call us to do something different. But the point is, is that he is now in charge. I like the way 1 Corinthians chapter 6 sums this up. Even talking about my own body what I do with my body, what I put in my body, what I engage in in my body. Verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Right? How many people know that the Holy Spirit of God, for a Christian, he dwells inside of us? And so that should affect the way we do things with our body, the decisions that we make. But look what he says. He says, you're not your own. You don't belong to you. Who do you belong to? You belong to God. Why? For you were bought with a price. What price did God pay for our bodies? He paid for us with his own blood, did he not? Jesus died for us on the cross. He purchased us, the Bible says, with his own blood. So that means that we're doubly his. We're number one, we're, we're his by virtue of the fact of creation, that all the earth belongs to the Lord's, the earth and everything in it, the earth and all those who dwell, who, who dwell therein but we belong to him doubly because he paid for us with the precious blood of Jesus. So what should we do? So glorify God 
and your body. And that's what verse 33 means. It says, so anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What we're saying is, God, all that I am and all that I have belongs to you. In Jesus' name. And as I draw this sermon to a close, I just want to thank you guys for, for hanging in there with me. I know it was, it was a tough one. It was a bumpy one. It got a little bumpy at times. But I really believe that God is calling us to a deeper level of personal commitment to him this year. Some of us are, are Christians, and this sermon has been a great reminder to us about the level of commitment that Jesus requires for anyone who would choose to follow him. And for other people in this room, you're, maybe you're, you're here today and you're hearing this message for the very first time, and you're like, wow, this Jesus person is really serious. He gave his life for me. He died on a cross. He paid for my sin in full. It sounded like Pastor Mike said that there was an open invitation. And I, I just love John chapter 6, verse 37. Here's, here's what he says. Jesus says this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I just want to ask you this morning, are you, are you somebody who's been given to the Son by the Father as a gift? The Father loves the Son, and he gives people to the Son as a gift. And here's what he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And here's, here's the part that I really love. He says, and the one who does come to me, I will never cast out. I will never send away. Friend, I just want you to know this morning that there is an open invitation to come to Jesus. God has a banquet set up for you. Everything has been prepared. Everything is ready. You don't have to bring anything. All you have to do is come. There's an open invitation to you this morning. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. You may think that I'm not good enough to come to Jesus this morning. I need to get some things cleaned up in my life first. And I would just say to you, no, that's not true. Jesus is a big enough God to handle anything that you've done and anything that you are. He says, the one who comes to me, that includes anyone. There is no limitation. There is no exception on that universal statement. The one who comes to me, here's the promise, I will by no means send away. When you read this statement in the original language, it's almost like you have to pause, you have to stop, because it's so shocking the way that Jesus says this in the negative. It's, it's the strongest possible way that you can say something is never gonna happen. He says, the one that comes to me, I will never, ever, by any means, ever, it'll never happen. I will never send anyone away who actually comes to me, who believes in me. It'll never happen. I'll never do it. And so if that's you this morning, I just want to invite you to pray with me. With um, every eye closed and every head bowed, just invite you to, just to repeat this prayer after me. Say, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to forgive me for my sins. That Jesus died on the cross for me he paid for my sin in full and he said it is finished and I hear the level of commitment that Jesus is calling me to and God I, help, I pray that you help me to follow Jesus God I need you to provide 
everything that I need for me to follow Jesus. I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to follow him. In Jesus' name, amen.